How did loving your enemies, a command of Jesus, suddenly become a sign that you're woke? And why is owning the libs now the answer to what would Jesus do? Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and joining me on this podcast is New York Times bestselling author, Tim Alberta, whose latest book explores what happened to American evangelicals. Decades ago, Americans viewed evangelicals favorably. In 1976, author and historian Gary Wills called evangelicalism the major religious force in America, both in numbers and in impact. And leading evangelical thinkers claimed that evangelicalism could no longer be regarded as reactionary, but was vigorously and sometimes creatively speaking to the needs of the contemporary world. Fast forward to today, and evangelicalism has become synonymous with Donald Trump, a thrice-married, vulgar opportunist who said he doesn't need to repent or ask for forgiveness. A recent poll by Pew Research found that the only religious group that views evangelicals favorably are evangelicals. And as Tim Alberta notes in his book, in 1991, 90% of Americans identified as Christians, but today, only 63% do. What happened to this once vibrant movement, and can it be saved, or has it passed beyond the point of no return? In his new book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, Tim Alberta does a masterful job of exploring these questions. But he doesn't do it as an outside critic passing judgment, but as a practicing Christian and the son of an evangelical pastor. I found Tim's book eye-opening on many levels, and I'm so excited to share this interview with you. But before I do, I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University and Mark Orta Barrington. If you're looking for a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience, Judson University is for you. Judson is located on 90 acres just 40 miles west of Chicago in Elgin, Illinois. The school offers more than 60 majors, great leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Plus, you can take classes online as well as in person. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marcord of Barrington. Marcord is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marcord, are men of integrity. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me is Tim Alberta, a staff writer for The Atlantic and the former chief political correspondent for Politico. Tim also is the author of the New York Times bestseller, American Carnage, on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. And his latest book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, explores American evangelicals in an age of extremism. So, Tim, welcome. It is just such a pleasure to be with you again. Yes, Julie, it is. It's great to catch up with you and come sort of full circle from where we were a couple of years ago talking about all of this. That's right. We spent uh, a couple, well, more than a couple of hours. I think it was supposed to be like maybe an hour and a half. And we got so into our discussion. Uh, I think we closed down one coffee shop and went to another. We did. We did. (laughs) I hijacked your whole day. Oh, it was fantastic and so encouraging to me, but always fun to talk to a fellow journalist with similar convictions. And I was excited about this book when we had our discussion. I'm so honored, I have to say, you know, to get the galley of the book. And I figured because we spent so much time that that I'd be in it. But, you know, just what you wrote and the way that you captured some things, just so, so honored to be featured in a chapter with Rachel Denhollander. So thank you so much for that. I just really appreciate it. I should tell you that is my mother's favorite chapter of the book uh, for for what it's <laughs> worth, because she's big into strong feminine Christian leadership. And so she was particularly smitten with you and with Rachel. So I, I thought you should know that. Oh, wow. Well, I'm honored. I really am. And I should mention that we are offering your book as a premium to anybody who gives $50 or more to The Roy's Report in this month. Again, this is just a way that you're able to support the work that we do, but also get this fantastic book. Just go to julieroys.com slash donate. You're able to help us out and continue the work that we do and also get what could be a great Christmas present for somebody or for yourself. So anyway, encourage you to do that. Well, Tim, as I mentioned in the open, you're not writing this book as sort of an outsider critiquing evangelicalism. You grew up evangelical. Your dad was an evangelical pastor. 
And oddly enough, it was at your dad's funeral in 2019 that something sort of awakened you to the severity of what's happening right now within evangelicalism. Tell us a bit about that story. Yeah, so my dad, uh, Reverend Richard Alberta, was uh, an amazing, amazing guy. We were very close. And he had a pretty crazy come to Jesus story himself, where he was actually kind of a hotshot New York finance guy. And my mom was kind of a hotshot young journalist with ABC Radio. They lived in New York. And and my dad, despite having all of this worldly material success, he just felt this emptiness. And he was an atheist. He grew up in an unbelieving home. And he one day stumbled into this church in the Hudson Valley and heard the gospel and he gave his life to Christ. And and it was already a pretty dramatic conversion because he became completely unrecognizable to people around him, including my mom, who was not yet a Christian. Everybody who knew him just thought he was sort of losing it. Uh, suddenly he's waking up at four in the morning to read his Bible and meditate in prayer for hours. And they're all like, "What? Who, what is this guy doing? And then pretty soon after that, he feels the Lord calling him to ministry. And now they all think he's like certifiable. <laughs> right. You know, but he he follows the Lord's calling. And, and uh, you know, he and my mom, who became a Christian, they sell all their possessions so he can go to seminary. And they basically, they give up this pretty lavish lifestyle they'd had. And for the next like 20 years, they just uh, work in small churches and live on food stamps and serve the Lord that way. And then when I come along uh, some years later, uh, we eventually settle in Brighton, which is a suburb of Detroit. And my dad builds this kind of small startup church there uh, into uh, kind of a mega church. Um, and that was my home. It was my community. It was my whole life, really. I My mom was on the staff there at the church as well. It was called Cornerstone Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I was raised physically, literally inside of that church. And so my dad dies a few years back. And when I came back to the church for the funeral, because of the work I've done in politics, and because I had just recently written this book about Trumpism and his takeover of the Republican Party, I was kind of in the crosshairs of right-wing media at that time because of the book. And so at the funeral or at the wake during the visitation, uh, I had a bunch of people at the church kind of confronting me and wanting to argue about politics and about Trump and asking me if I was still a Christian and how I could be criticizing him this way. And um, it was pretty, it was pretty ugly. And as you said, sort of, sort of a wake up call. Yeah. And it is something, isn't it? When you don't support these people that certain evangelicals believe you have to, you're, you know, I've got people praying for my salvation because I've taken on John MacArthur. <laughs> you know, it's, it's craziness, but there is this tribalism now within evangelicalism, and it's probably at its very worst when it comes to former President Trump and and what he typified. It's interesting to me, you know, as I look at the evangelical movement, you know, I was a card-carrying conservative, right, before Trump came along. And then something really happened. And I, and I feel like I was going back and reading a little bit of Chuck Colson's book, Kingdoms in Conflict. Do you remember that book? I do, yeah. I mean, he was pretty even-handed. I mean, he, he's very clear in there that that being in the kingdom of heaven means it's not about ruling others. It's about being under God's rule. And yet something has tripped where we're not saying that anymore. We're really become about this whole dominionism. And he talks about the cultural mandate and things like that, but it's from a very, very different perspective. So here we are dealing with all of this Christian nationalism and According to your book, a lot of this began, and it's funny because now Lynchburg, Virginia has become synonymous with the Falwells and with Liberty University. But I've got to say, growing up in the 80s, you know, I knew about the moral majority and some of that, but it just wasn't that big to me. And yet it has grown and grown. And I guess I wasn't even aware of, of the influence it had. But talk about how a lot of this has its roots really there in Lynchburg, Virginia, and with what Jerry Falwell Sr. started in like the late 70s, early 80s. Sure. In the context of the American church experience, it is Lynchburg, Virginia. It is the mid-1970s. And it is Jerry Falwell Sr., who was a brilliant businessman, who, who you know, th this guy could sell anyone on anything. And he, he was kind of a master entrepreneur, also a master manipulator. 
And what Falwell Sr. effectively did, he had already built out Thomas Road Baptist Church into a massive congregation, and then he had tapped into the relatively new medium of television to broadcast his sermons around the country. At one point, he became the single most telecasted program in the entire country. And so he's reaching millions of people and he's raising a lot of money. This is pretty cutting edge stuff at the time, but he's building out a mailing list with like more than 10 million names on it. And they are raking in money. So then he already has his church, but Falwell Sr. is really almost the early archetype of the Christian nationalist. He believes that sort of fighting for God and fighting for America is one and the same. And that if America falls, then almost God's kingdom on earth will fall. And so he recognizes that he needs something more than a church, that he needs kind of a cultural stronghold. So he does two things. First, he takes this little Baptist college, Lynchburg Baptist College, and at the time of the bicentennial in 1976, he rebrands it to Liberty University. And he changes the colors from green and gold to red, white, and blue. And basically, they do this whole patriotic rebranding exercise, which is aimed at tapping into not only patriotism in the church, but also tapping into the percolating low simmering at the time, fear in the church and grievance in the church, this sense that you know, abortion is now legal, pornography is prevalent, the drug culture is out of control, prayer is banned in public schools, secularism is on the march, and they're coming for us. Like, they are coming for Christianity in America. And so Jerry Falwell turns Liberty University into this cause, and then piggybacks onto that with this new organization, the Moral Majority. So suddenly, he's got these three cogs, and he builds out this machine, Falwell Sr. does, and it is incredibly effective. They mobilize tens of millions of voters and sort of bring them under this banner of not just, you know, Christianity, not just following Jesus, but a very particular type of Christianity, a sort of subculture of a subculture. And in many ways, those seeds planted by Falwell 50 years ago, we are harvesting them now. And what we are dealing with, with you know, the fracturing of the modern evangelical movement, I think you can trace it directly back to that period. It's so interesting because I think when you talk about Jerry Falwell Sr., and I've talked to a lot of people from Liberty, I've done a lot of reporting about Liberty, and a lot of folks look very wistfully back to the early days. And these are good people. You know, I've talked extensively to them. They're, they're really good people, sincere believers. They look at what's happened to Liberty and they're like, this isn't senior. Like senior loved the Lord and he really was sincere in his walk with the Lord. And junior just was like, we, we don't know how junior happened, right? I mean, that's how they often talk about it. I'm going to have you come back to that, because I think what you present is a very, very different picture and, and honestly one that I've begun to suspect myself. But let's let's talk about what happens with, you know, senior dies pretty abruptly, right, of a heart attack. And then Jerry Falwell Jr., who is the lawyer, right, he takes over, not Jonathan Falwell, who's the pastor, much more of the spiritual leader, but Jerry Falwell Jr. takes over very clear I'm not a spiritual leader. I mean, he, he really eschewed that whole entire title. But when he takes over, despite all the success that his dad had, the school is on the brink of bankruptcy at this point, right? And he kind of turns it around. So Falwell Jr. is the, yes, the UVA-trained lawyer, businessman, real estate developer, who is a, he's a smart guy. He knows business. And he had really kept the church and organized religion at arm's length. Uh, his younger brother, Jonathan, was the preacher in the family. But Jerry Jr., he'd gone to Liberty for his undergraduate studies. And he says that, you know, he believes in the teachings of Jesus, but, but rejects a lot of the other stuff that comes with it, including Liberty itself. Jerry Jr. never wanted to really be a part of Liberty. And suddenly, as he's working in the private sector, the school is about to go under. Jerry Sr. has really badly mismanaged the finances, and he tells his son that basically the school is on the brink of insolvency. And so Jerry Jr. kind of reluctantly 
comes aboard and he helps to stabilize everything. And he makes a lot of drastic cuts to the different programs and, and uh, kind of rejiggers the whole balance sheet operation. And they, and he saves Liberty in a lot of ways that, you know, his father gave him credit for that. And it's interesting though, Julie, that when Jerry Falwell Sr. dies, it's not an accident that Jerry Jr. takes over. That was the plan of succession. It's notable that here is Jerry Falwell Sr., who is both businessman and culture warrior, but also a preacher. And he's got these two sons that exemplify one of each, right? He's <laughs> mm -hmm. got the son who's a preacher, mm -hmm. and he's got the other son who's the kind of culture warrior businessman. And he appoints the latter to take over Liberty after he's gone. And, and that in and of itself, I think, speaks volumes. And then more to the point, Jerry Jr., as you said, he comes in and he tells anybody who will listen, look, I'm not a religious leader. I'm not here charged with the spiritual well-being of this school. I'm here to turn us into a powerhouse. I'm here to turn us into a highly profitable, highly influential organization that can sort of you know, push back against the forces of secularism and the left in this country. But he doesn't, to his credit, I suppose, Falwell Jr., he doesn't pretend that he's something that he's not. And the irony of it all, Julie, is that everybody was fine with it. They were yeah. fine with it, right? They were, mm -hmm. as you know, when the money was coming in and the buildings were going up at a rapid clip and the endowment was bulging, everybody was fine with it because he's Jerry Sr.'s namesake and he's a Falwell and the school is doing great. Clearly, God is blessing this project. So what's not to like? Well, and you say everyone was fine with it, and it's true on a public face, everyone was fine with it. I will say I started hearing from a lot of people who weren't fine with it from, I mean, obviously the Jane Doe's that now we know about who were victims of sexual assault and their cases got just horribly mismanaged. In fact, not even reported. And, you know, now we have the Department of Education looking into how badly Liberty bungled these cases and, and violated Title IX mandates. And, and they, they could face like a 30, you know, some million dollar fine, which could be one of the largest ever. So this was percolating under the surface, but nobody knew about it at the time. And, and I also talked to a lot of professors who were like, the way this place is being run is abysmal. There's nothing Christian about it. The way the administration handles things, there's nothing Christian about it. And we know, too, from some of the people you interviewed, it was less like a religious institution and more like a mafia, like a mob boss, like Jerry turned into. I think Jerry is very he's very likable when you meet him. I mean, obviously, very socially gifted, even though he's an introvert. He seems like just kind of your good old boy that, you know, everybody likes. But he began to become very controlling and lock that place down where Jerry ruled with really an iron fist. And by the time some of the stuff started coming out about him, that place, I mean, am I right that it was a lot less like a, a Christian institution, a lot more like the, the an organized bosses. crime syndicate? Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, was, yeah. Well, and, and listen, like this is so, Julie, it's funny because obviously you and I are in the same line of work. We're coming at this from pretty similar worldviews. And we're having similar conversations with some of the same people. And you're exactly right. When they're using the term family business, uh, you know, <laughs> Liberty is a family business. They're not just talking about like the Falwell family. There's, you know, the implication there is like very clearly that there is almost a mafioso-esque quality to you don't cross the Falwells. The power is concentrated in a few hands here. If you get a seat at the table, you are just lucky to be there and you nod and you, you know, at one point, I think I make sort of a offhand smart alecky comparison to like the North Korean military where, you know, you stand and salute the dear leader and, and, and don't dare step out of line. And of course, that's tragic on a number of levels. One of them being that Liberty has been filled over the years with really good and godly students and good and godly professors who are there for the right reasons. Some of these professors who started to really see the rot from the inside, they chose to stick around because on the one hand, they could see 
the success around them, the, the kind of the observable material success that, you know, the, the campus is absolutely stunning. Maybe God is doing something really marvelous here. And I just have to kind of see my way through this part of it. But I also think that there is a level of devotion and a feeling for some of these people that they wanted to help write the ship, that they wanted to be a part of the solution. And obviously, those are some of the characters I talk to in the book who now have finally gotten to a breaking point where they say, you know what, I just, I can't do it anymore. And not only can I not do it anymore, but the world needs to know, the whistle needs to be blown here, that like, this is not okay. What does it say about evangelicalism, Tim, that when the money was coming in, and the money still is coming in, that everybody was okay with how godless this place was. And anybody that was in administration knew and saw it. The board, who it's astounding to me that when Jerry Falwell Jr. got embroiled in this big sex scandal and he gets fired, that Jerry Prevo takes over. And we think that that is a change of the guard. This was the man who was the chairman of the board the whole time that Jerry was doing all of this stuff. It's shocking to me but yet I see it so much in so many different Christian organizations. And so what is it about us that we're okay with these things, with really what is just absolute rampant hypocrisy? I'm afraid that in many ways we're actually worse than some of those secular institutions because of this idea of the prosperity gospel, it's almost become like this proper noun. And so people feel like, well, you know, those are those people are crazy. I'm not one of them. I'm not a part of that. Right. But the idea inherent to the prosperity gospel, right, is that, well, if you give to the Lord and if, if you serve the Lord, if you follow the Lord, then you will be blessed. But that is so conveniently and so easily reverse engineered by a lot of Christians, either at a conscious or at a subconscious level, where when you see any sort of material success around you, you then say, well, clearly I'm blessed. Cle clearly the Lord is blessing this project. And that creates kind of a permission structure, I think, for a lot of us to then turn a blind eye to things that are very obviously wrong or kind of downplay things that you otherwise would never downplay. And whether that's an individual church congregation, whether that's a big college campus, whether it's the president of the United States, this can manifest in a lot of different ways. It's, it's so much based on that kind of material thinking that I think we are particularly vulnerable, particularly susceptible to it here in the American church. I think the saddest part about it is that many of us just don't see it or maybe don't want to see it. I don't know. Your book has a stunning quote, stunning quote by a former professor, Dr. Aaron Warner, and he says, and I quote, Jerry Sr. was always a bit of a scoundrel, and Jerry Jr. perfected the art of using fear and hatred as a growth strategy. Christianity happens to be the thing that they use to build a multi-billion dollar institution. It could have been anything else. It could have been moonshine, but they chose Christianity, and it's gained them a lot of power and a lot of money the two things these people truly worship. You talked to a lot of people, interviewed a lot of people at Liberty. Is that characterization fair or do you think it's a little too harsh? It's harsh, that's for sure. It might contain some traces of hyperbole, but I will say this, Aaron Werner is another guy who knows that institution very well, went there as an undergraduate, has deep longstanding ties to Liberty and the stories he tells from the inside are stunning. One of the other quotes, actually, I thought it might be the one that you were going to read because it kind of runs right along in parallel to that one, is from a current professor. Now, at the time of this recording, he is a current professor. My sense is that when the book releases and when this gets back to the administration, that he could be dismissed. And I, he's expecting that that will happen. But his name is Nick Olson, and he's an English professor, very popular English professor there, brilliant, godly young guy. And he's a legacy at Liberty. His dad was a, one of the first students at Liberty and, and a contemporary of Falwell Seniors. And Nick has sort of agonized in recent years with this inheritance at Liberty and everything that he's seen and struggled with there. And he says to me, this is not quite verbatim, but he says this to me in the final chapter of the book. He says, Jerry Jr., thought that he was fulfilling his father's vision by eschewing the spiritual stuff and by building out this massive multi-billion dollar like culture warring republican institution 
And he says, and it is heartbreaking because that's exactly what he's done. And he did fulfill Jerry Sr.'s vision. And I think that that piece of it, Julie, is not hyperbole. I think that when you spend enough time digging through the archives and talking to people who were there uh, in the room where it happened, so to speak, and it becomes pretty self-evident. And by the way, you know, you mentioned earlier that there are people who will say, yeah, but, you know, Jerry Sr., he really loved the Lord. You know, Well, these things aren't mutually exclusive. I mean, it, I'm not suggesting that he didn't love the Lord, but I'm suggesting that like many people who love the Lord, he got his priorities out of whack. And by the way, we are all susceptible to this, but it's very hard to evaluate the history of Liberty University, the decisions made there, the structure of the place and the personnel and how they've treated people and, and what the benchmarks have been. It's very hard to assess all of that and reach any other conclusion than the one that Nick Olson reaches at the end of the book. And yet Liberty continues to be the largest Christian university in, in the country it still has this dominance. There's still a lot of people that I know sending their kids there. And it's heartbreaking to me. I mean, I, I just wonder at what point do we say enough and we stand up to this? And I'm glad that people are starting to speak out, but sometimes I wonder if it's too little too late when we have just these juggernaut organizations. And, and it really has been a marrying of two kingdoms that should be in conflict, and we're trying to say that they can be married together, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom, the political realm, and the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus never became a political leader. It's, it's stunning to me, some of these quotes that are in your book that are just like you expect lightning to fall out of the sky, the way that Scripture and Jesus are being misrepresented. It's just so awful. In your first section, though, I have to say there's there's always some redeeming thing in each section, which I'm like, thank you, Lord. It's like a, a palate cleanser and <laughs> a lot of just awful stuff. Um, but you have this beautiful chapter, and it's on a guy, John Dixon, who I actually got to know in my reporting on Ravi Zacharias, because John used to be a speaker for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and he was one of those who, you know, pretty early in the game, as things were starting to come out, recognized that there were some lies being told by the institution he had been a part of. And he, he quickly made a break and he, he boldly took a stand. I mean, I, I really respected him for that, that he didn't seem to have this, oh, fear of if I say something, what's going to happen to me? I mean, he just said what was right and which was what was true. And now he's at Wheaton College, which is right in my backyard. And what I love is that he just, he's so joyfully on the losing team. You know, we've got, we have got all of these people, all of these Christians out there telling us we have to be on the winning team. We've got to take America back. And here's John Dixon saying, nope, we're on the losing team right now. I mean, eventually when Christ comes back, we'll be, you know, he will set things right and we'll be on the winning team. But for now, we're, we're kind of on the losing team and it's okay, people. So talk about John and what we can learn from him and his example, because again, he's from Australia, which is probably about 10 or 15 years ahead of us in sort of this post-Christian era that, you know, is beginning to happen here as well. John is really one of my favorite people I've met in, in all of the journeys that I was on and one of my favorite characters in the book for exactly the reasons that you mentioned there and the fact that he is not an American is I think a big part of his perspective, right? But I think also there's something deeper embedded in the American psyche about winning, about the need to dominate. I have a funny quote somewhere else in the book from somebody who had spent years living and studying and teaching in Canada, who talks about how Canadians just want fourth place and then when they get the bronze, they're thrilled. <laughs> and and in America, if you don't get the gold, like you're a total loser, right? Yeah, right. Um, and, and so there's something, you know, about the American Christian experience that's so different. And so John, one of my favorite scenes in all of this reporting that I did was we're sitting in the cafeteria there at Wheaton College, surrounded by the flags of the world all around us in the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. And I say, why did you come here? Like, really, why did you come here? And he says, like, this is my mission field now. Like the U.S. Mm -hmm. is my mission field because of this, this stuff, everything you and I are discussing right now. He said, he said, this stuff is like so toxic and so unhealthy. And the church is caught in this terrible pattern that, by the way, is not new, right? You go back to, mm -hmm. to Constantine. There's been 
this obsession with worldly power, this inclination to merge two kingdoms into one. So what we're living through here is not new in a lot of ways. And I think John is so brilliant in kind of illuminating the appropriate Christian perspective here, which is to say that if you care so much about winning and losing, then the good news is you've already won, right? The tomb is empty. Jesus conquered death and you believe in him. So therefore you're already a part of the kingdom. But this place, which is meant to be ephemeral and unimportant ultimately, and just, you know, a, a, a step among the stairs, that if your identity here is wrapped up in winning and losing, then you can't really have your identity there. And he says, ultimately, you know, we're the death and resurrection people. Like losing and losing well is a part of the Christian experience. And that is so tough for us. I mean, it's not tough for Chinese Christians to get this, right? I mean, no, they get it right away because to be a believer means you have to get rid of everything. You can't hold on to anything. You're going to lose all your power, all your position. But I think we've been Actually, it's the curse of being prosperous and being in a country where Christians have had the majority and where it actually was a plus probably for my parents to be believers. I think it won't be for my children, but maybe that'll be a good thing. And maybe that's precisely what the church needs. We already think we're being persecuted, which is funny. We really aren't, but our, we may see it. And right now, I think most of the persecution we're getting is because of what you said, that we're not because we're so holy, but because we're actually worse than the world in so many different ways. And we deserve it. John Dixon talks about how there's sort of this inverse relationship historically between the amount of cultural and social and political power held by Christians in a society and the health of Christianity in that society, right? In other words, when you hold the commanding heights, the Christian influence is actually tends to be pretty weak and pretty corrupted and pretty compromised. When you are at the margins and when you are truly countercultural, the witness thrives. And we've seen that throughout history. Another favorite character of mine in the book, Brian Zond, who's the pastor of a church out in Missouri, he talks about how difficult it is for American Christians to really appreciate how the Bible is written from the perspective of the underdog. Right, the Hebrew slaves fleeing Egypt and the first century Christians living under brutal Roman occupation, like they had no power, they had no influence, and yet they were so joyful and they were so content because they had their kingdom, right? And it does give me unease, even in my own personal life, just the things I enjoy, the materials, the prosperity, the the comforts. Can I fully appreciate the baby born in a manger? Can I fully identify with the vagrant preacher from the ghettos of Nazareth? You know, it's a hard thing. And here's the reality. That message, which is Christ's message, really doesn't sell well in America. Having your best life now sells in America. And what we're seeing right now, and this you know, brings me to the second section of your book, dealing with power, which again, we've got to take back. America has become sort of the, the mantra that we're hearing from so many of these you know, political rights and it has just morphed into something where, and again, I said at the, at the outset, I used to be very much politically engaged with the conservative movement. I am not anymore because I can't stomach it and what it's become. I felt like we were being salt, but now it's about dominating and doing it by any means possible where we, we just get rid of our morality. And I was always brought up to believe, and I think this is what scripture teaches, that the means is as important as the end. And so if we achieve a righteous end through an unrighteous means, then we've lost. We've completely lost because we have given up what makes us unique and what makes us God-honoring for something that we're saying is a God-honoring you know, end. But again, this is what has happened in our country. And, and what's interesting in this section that just captured my imagination, I mean, I've wondered this. Like you take a Robert Jeffress, right? This guy's not dumb. He's a smart Southern Baptist preacher, clearly a savvy guy. He has built this megachurch, but the things that came out of his mouth, especially when Trump was in power, but it's still there, the things that come out of his mouth, and I think he's got to know that this is not in line with the Gospels. He's got to see this, and yet publicly you wouldn't hear that. But when you met with him privately, you began to hear some doubt in there and allowing you to see a little bit of vulnerability, although it 
didn't seem to last all that long. But talk about that because I'm not sensing much doubt in the masses that follow these men. But when you get them one-on-one, tell me what you see. And it's not just Robert Jeffress. Greg Locke. Greg Locke. It's Ralph Reed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these guys, it, it's the pastor who in my hometown grew his church tenfold by basically turning Sunday morning worship services into Fox News segments um, mm-hmm. and giving a Nazi salute to Gretchen Whitmer from his pulpit. I mean, Yikes. but then you get them one-on-one and you press them a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, politely, uh, respectfully, but you press them. Suddenly they not only back off a little bit, but they do a little bit of like winking and nodding at you to basically say like, you're right. I'm definitely putting on a bit of a song and dance here for the masses. But I think that they will ultimately justify it by saying, well, yeah, but look at all these people who are coming in and look at the opportunity we have to reach them now with the gospel. So, you know, those ends really do justify the means. I think the problem with that, as you hinted at, is, well, look, I mean, there's a lot of problems with it. You know, Mark 836 is not a rhetorical question, right? Like, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul. But I I think for some of these people, some of these leaders, the thing that really grates at me, and I know it grates at you, Julie, is like, they're the shepherds. They're the ones who are supposed to know better. Because a lot of their flock, you know, and I'm not being condescending or patronizing when I say this, they don't necessarily know better. They are the sheep, right? They need to be shepherded. And instead of shepherding, a lot of these people have just themselves become wolves. And they become wolves for what? So that you can have a seat at the table, so that you can get on Fox News, so that you can raise some money, so that, I I mean, for what, ultimately? You're so right. When you press them on it, almost to a person, they will acknowledge at some level that what they're doing is kind of gross and kind of anti-biblical, and then they just keep on doing it. So speak to the person who is listening, and we probably don't have a ton of these, but there may be some who are listening, who have bought this hook, line, and sinker that we do need to take America back. And Franklin Graham told us it's all for the Supreme Court justices. And we we got the Supreme Court justices and Roe v. Wade was just overturned. And, you know, look at what was accomplished. So, you know, politics is a dirty business, Tim. I mean, come on, if we're going to win in politics, which You know, we're talking about babies here. Babies are being slaughtered left and right. And then, you know, some of these people would allow a baby to be born alive and and kill it. You know, that's who these people are. So, I mean, come on. This is the world we live in, and we've got to fight the way that the world fights. What do you say? I'd say a couple of things. I think you can go round and round about Roe v. Wade and about Trump and about Supreme Court justices. But be careful what you wish for in this space, because the fact of the matter is that Roe v. Wade fell and the total number of abortions in this country went up. I live in Michigan, where prior to Roe v. Wade falling, there were pretty tight abortion restrictions in Michigan. Now it is the Wild West. It is some of the most liberalized abortion laws in the country. And that is true in seven or eight other states that have had ballot initiatives passed since Roe v. Wade, dramatically liberalizing abortion laws, and it's going to happen in a number of other states next year. So let's be really clear-eyed and fact-based when we talk about what our political involvement does and what it doesn't do. At the end of the day, if you want to win hearts and minds to stop the scourge of abortion, if you are a Christian and you view this as your great crusade, then Is voting for a candidate or putting a bumper sticker on your car, is that the way to win those hearts and minds? Because the fact is, if American evangelicals had put a fraction of the energy into the social side of abortion, of doing the hard work in the clinics and helping the single mothers and doing the foster care that is needed to address this at its root, if they've been willing to do that over the last 50 years, my guess is that public opinion would be dramatically different as it pertains to abortion. And we wouldn't even be talking about Roe v. Wade because the number of abortions would be so low in this country that it wouldn't even register. But we've sort of self-selected into this alternate universe where politicians are our savior and that politics is the mechanism by which we right the wrongs in this country. And I'm sorry, but if you are citizens of another kingdom, 
then you can't possibly believe that. You can't possibly believe that Donald Trump or that any other politician is the person who's going to ultimately right these great moral wrongs. But unfortunately, I think that's the trap we've fallen into. You know, I used to be very involved in the pro-life movement. I will say almost all of the people that I knew when I was involved in the pro-life movement were actually involved in reaching out to single moms and caring for them and caring for their unborn children. But I think what we've forgotten so much is that politics is downstream of culture. So if you're losing the culture, which we clearly are, to change the politics, if you've got a kid that's rebellious, a teenager who's rebellious in your home, locking down all the all the windows and the doors in your house, that's not going to keep your kid from sinning. What's gonna keep your kid from sinning is if you can winsomely love your child into a relationship with Jesus Christ and to want to be like you and to want to adopt your values. But we've forgotten about that. We've become this, you know, might is right. And I remember in 2016 writing a, a commentary, The Rise of Trump, The Fall of Evangelicalism. And I said, we may win this one, but we will lose in the long run if we throw our convictions out the window and we alienate everyone around us by our, you know, the way that we talk and the way that we relate to people. This is not how you win people the Lord. That fell on, you know, really deaf ears. It actually lost me some key supporters too. But I just was stunned because I did not know who these people were that I thought believed the same way that I did and had the same values. And then I went, wow, we are just on different planets. We really don't have that. I want to look at one person. Again, you have these palate cleansers within <laughs> all of these sections. And, and one of them to me is Cal Thomas, who was very much a part of the right. And so I can relate to that because <laughs> that was, I mean, I used to be emceeing the banquet to raise money for, you know, the political cause or whatever it was. I don't do that anymore. Cal Thomas doesn't do that anymore. What changed Cal? It's so funny, Julie, because just a minute ago, when you were talking about what are the weapons of our warfare, I was thinking about Cal. Because Cal, for those who don't know his story, you know, he was Jerry Falwell Sr.'s lieutenant in the moral majority, and he was their spokesman for the moral majority and the vice president of that organization, and, you know, was really heavily involved in the kind of crusading era of the religious right. He was a central figure. And then Cal really started to feel uneasy with what he was seeing around him. And he doesn't even sugarcoat it. We have this very raw conversation in the book where mm -hmm. he talks about, you know, the, the, the corruption and the greed and the grift and how he just couldn't justify it. He justified it for a while by saying, well, look at how many people we're reaching and look at all this money coming in. So clearly, you know, God must be doing something here. And then he eventually just gets to a point where he says, no, this is a scam. It's just immoral. And he finally walks away. And then years later, he writes this book called Blinded by Might, where he kind of tries to atone. And, and he just says, listen, I was a total believer in winning the culture war to protect Christian America as, you know, part of our duty, you know, to God's kingdom. And in fact, not only has it failed, but it has backfired spectacularly that we have driven away so many people who need Jesus, but who won't have anything to do with us anymore. They won't even let us in the door to have a conversation because of the way we've treated them, because of the way we've treated the culture. So to your point about locking down the teenager in the house, right? I mean, Cal really eloquently and powerfully was giving voice to this when he wrote that book. And then, you know, in our interviews for this book, he's an older guy now, he's 80. And he's looking back with such regret on those years and thinking about how did he in some way contribute to laying the groundwork for Trumpism as this kind of subcult in the evangelical world? And what's most interesting to me from that whole conversation, and I said this to him, is that the more things have changed, the more they've stayed the exact same. I mean, this break that he's describing in the 1980s and this kind of crisis of conscience that he's feeling is exactly what we're trying to address today, what I'm trying to address in the book now, which is that listen, it doesn't have to be this way. You have a choice, right? We all have a choice. 
it was so incredibly unpleasant for me to write this book in a lot of ways, Julie. If I'm being totally honest, I probably couldn't have written it while my dad was still alive. Um, it would have been too hard. Like I've had some people writing me emails this past week saying, oh, like, thank you for your courage. Thank you for your brave. I don't feel courageous. I don't feel brave. I feel like a coward in a lot of ways that it took me so long and that a lot of ways took my dad dying and having those experiences at his funeral to finally be willing to acknowledge and use my platform, my relatively high profile, journalistically speaking, to address this thing that has been so clearly wrong for such a long time. And so for anybody listening, whether it's in your individual congregation, your faith community, your family, whatever it is, like it doesn't have to be this way. And it takes people like Cal Thomas kind of blowing up his own life, blowing up his tribal affiliations and walking away. It takes Pastor Brian Zond, who I write about in chapter 15, who had a mega church of 5,000 people and they were making money hand over fist. And then he just woke up one day and had this like epiphany from the Lord that it was all wrong and that it was so shallow and it was doing such a disservice to the gospel. And he blew up his mega church. He's got like 150 people who come every Sunday now and the sanctuary seats like 2,000. And he made a choice, right? Cal Thomas made a choice. You've made a choice, Julie. And I just think like at the end of the day, the people who make that choice and who decide to reckon with what this has become, I don't think they're going to regret it. I really don't. Oh, I have not regretted it once. Being free of the whole evangelical industrial complex, as it's called, and just being free to follow your conscience without thinking, what are the consequences if I speak the truth publicly? Like, what's going to happen to me? Like, I see so many Christians just living in fear that if they speak out or they tell the truth that they know, that, that something, you know, this will be bad consequences for me. And it just makes me wonder, do we believe the gospel? Like, do we believe the gospel? What gospel are we living on day-to-day -day basis? And I love Pastor Zahn's story. That was like one of my favorite stories. It reminded me of the book because I had just interviewed Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger and their book, Pivot, which talks about similar things. Other churches that realize church is toxic. It's huge. It's successful, but I feel empty inside, you know, and I feel thin. And they made that pivot, and it may be to smaller church. It may be, and it's interesting, though, you were saying how Zahn's church is now starting to maybe even start to grow and become a little bit healthier. And see, when I hear that, I say it's going to take a while. But in this, you know, these ashes, do you see something growing that's beautiful there that can replace this ugliness that, quite frankly, I, think, I just think it's doomed. I think it's coming down. I, I don't know that it will come down quickly, this complex that we've built, but I think it will come down eventually. It may take decades, but I think there will be a Christianity, I hope, this is my prayer, that replaces it and that's more organic and more grassroots, less big leadership and more the body of Christ. Yes, I do see something rising from the ashes. I can sense it, particularly among the younger generation. One of the things that consistently surprised me in all of my reporting, and, and it was a pleasant surprise to be clear, was spending time with younger believers. They ideologically, culturally, politically, like they're really no different from their parents. Like they check those boxes on paper. But then you kind of get into some of this with them and they want nothing to do with Trumpism. They want nothing to do with Charlie Kirk. They want, and I'm talking about like the serious believers. I'm not talking about like the, the very casual kids who identify as Christian, but then go to a Turning Point USA event. I, I mean, like you spend time around Liberty and like, yes, there are some MAGA kids at Liberty, but most of the kids you spend time with at Liberty, including those who would self-identify as like, sure, I guess on paper, I would be a Republican because of abortion, because of other issues, they will really eloquently and gracefully speak to these schisms. And they're so perceptive. I, I think that's the big thing, Julie, is that they can see it, right? My generation, I kind of think of us as like the children of the moral majority. And we can now very clearly diagnose this in a way that my dad's generation probably couldn't. They were too close to it. They were too wrapped up in it. And I think, you know, in some ways they almost, I kind of tend to maybe just give them a little bit of a pass for that because they didn't have the appropriate distance to really 
assess it and analyze it in the way that I think I'm able to, and certainly in the way that the generations behind me are able to. They see what this is doing to the church, and they are saying, no, thank you. Even at my home church, the guy who took over for my dad, he was almost run out of the place. He came very close to just quitting because it got so bad for him. Because he here's this young guy taking over this, this megachurch congregation in a very conservative Republican community. And he's not particularly a conservative Republican. He's not like some big Democrat either. He's just a guy who like loves Jesus and who processes news events through the eyes of like of the gospel, right? What's so interesting is that he lost a ton of his congregation. And then this past summer, I went back for the first time since my dad's funeral and the place was packed and I didn't recognize anybody there. And he comes out and gives this sort of fire and brimstone sermon challenging them on the culture wars, challenging them on like, where are your priorities really? What kingdom do you really belong to? And so that actually, I didn't aim to end the book on that optimistic note, but I was so encouraged by it because it makes me think that in this market of supply and demand that you and I have talked about, mm-hmm. and mostly we've focused on the the perverted nature of the supply and demand, that there is also maybe more demand out there than we realize for that true, pure form of, of the gospel. And, and so that is my hope moving forward, and particularly with these younger Christians who will demand something better than what we've seen so far. I loved, I don't often read the epilogue, but in your book I did, and that was beautiful to read about Pastor Winans and and the way that, you know, you kind of left him in the early chapters, really disillusioned and discouraged, and then here he comes back invigorated for the gospel and preaching it so boldly, and that, that really, pastors like that give me hope. And I know that there's probably a lot more of them than I encounter in you know, the line of work that I do, which usually means I hear about the worst of the worst all the time. Yeah. Let me just, I, I have to ask you about this. Most of your chapters are about political power and about the way that these kingdoms and and the power has, has sort of become an idolatrous thing. And then you, you turn your eye to corruption going on in the church and the abuse, uh, the abuse in, in the Southern Baptist Convention, how that's been addressed recently how Rachel Den Hollander uh, stood up to it. And she went, you know, most people I'm sure listening know Rachel's story, but you know, one of the first gymnasts who came forward and told her story about Larry Nasser and how he had abused so much of the, you know, US Olympic gymnast team. And she went from being just Joan of Arc, I think you call it, to, to being Jezebel, right? Or from Esther to Jezebel, what are the other? Because she spoke out about the evil in the church. And that's what I found. When I was at Moody Radio, I was allowed to speak about Joel Osteen, right? Or I was allowed to speak about the liberals in politics. But when I turned my critique on our own tribe, man, I would get shut down. You know, um, that's one of the reasons I, I left Moody, besides the others that I talk about. I couldn't speak out about the evil in our own house. And I feel that at this point, we have no moral platform as Christians to be speaking about the evil out in the world anymore. Until we deal with the evil in our own house and the way that it's crept in, you know, judgment begins with the house of God. He doesn't expect, you know, the people who don't know him to act any differently than they're acting, but he expects us to, and we're not. So I appreciated that you put this chapter in the book, dealing with some of the abuse and the corruption within the church, but you could have easily left it out and just talked about the way that politics has, you know, really usurped the gospel. Why did you put this chapter in? One of the things that really bugs me is how the New Testament model here, and you were just alluding to this a moment ago, the New Testament model is not ambiguous. We are to treat outsiders with unlimited grace and kindness and compassion and forgiveness because they don't know God and they don't know any better. That is clear. And what is also clear is that we are to treat the insiders with the utmost accountability and they are to be held to the highest standard because they do know God and they do know better. That is the New Testament model. And we in the American church have completely flipped it. We have nothing but hostility and animus 
and enmity towards the outside mm -hmm. world. And we practice nothing but grace and forgiveness and cheap grace and cheap forgiveness inside the church, right? And it drives me a little bit nuts because if you are the person out there in the world who is sort of curious about Jesus and you feel something missing in your life, what are the odds today that you're going to go to a local church and try to learn a bit, little bit more? I mean, you know, you might say, well, some people will, some people do, sure. But the statistics here don't lie, Julie. Like when you look back 30 or 40 years, the perception of the church among unbelievers in this country was incredibly positive. People who did not know Jesus looked at the church as a beacon of moral rectitude, of compassion, of social good. Even if they were never going to sit in the pews with us, even if they didn't believe any of the doctrine, they respected the church and they admired the church. And that has completely changed. It's just completely mm -hmm. fallen apart. There are some people who will tell you, like Robert Jeffress and I go back and forth on this in the book. He said, well, that doesn't matter, right? Those people aren't looking for the Lord. I completely disagree. Mm. I think the credibility of the church matters enormously. To your question of why did I feel compelled to include that chapter, well, who's going to hold the church accountable? Is the church going to hold itself accountable? No. I mean, typically institutions are not very good at self-policing. We know that from working in journalism, right? By the way, the media is not very good at self-policing. Actually, I could argue the media is terrible at self-policing. I mean, any big institution it can't be expected to hold itself accountable. Okay, so what are the mechanisms for accountability here? If we care about the bride of Christ, if we care about the credibility of the church, if we care about how the outside world perceives the church, which I think matters enormously, then what do we do to ensure that the church is on the up and up and is doing its duty before God and is carrying out its, its purpose and its mission? You know, it's journalism has to play a role in that. I think, you know, the law has to play a role in that. I think that there are external forces, even, you know, gasp secular forces that have to play a role in that because otherwise we just leave these churches, these pastors to their own devices. And I'm sorry, but you don't need to read any other source than the Bible itself. You pick up the Bible itself, read from Old Testament to New, and see how well that works out. We mm -hmm. see it time and again. If these, if there are not accountability structures in place, then things go very badly, very quickly. And so that's a long answer to to your question. Hmm. Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate your book. And I know you're getting interviews all over the country. I saw you on CBS Good Morning uh, America. That was so exciting to see, but really wonderful that you've gotten this platform to winsomely speak to the rest of society who I, I remember <laughs> a couple of times I got to be on NPR they would ask me about evangelicalism, and and I, I they are always amazed. I think that I could even string two sentences together, and I was actually an evangelical, right? <laughs> um, so, <laughs> but I am so thrilled that you are representing evangelicals because you're a face that. And I don't know. Do you still identify as evangelical? Not really. I don't fight the label, but I would not volunteer it for myself just because of exactly what we just described. Right. You know, somebody outside the church hears it and they quickly shut down the conversation because they don't really want anything to do with you. I don't know if I would take that term either. I'm kind of where you are as well. But you're a Christian and you love Jesus. And, and even when I heard you in that one interview recently, you said, how's your faith? And you're like, it's as strong as it's ever been. I thank you for that and for your witness and, and for this book and for giving me so much of your time. I really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you for all that you're doing. And, uh, and thank you for saying that. It's very kind of you. We're ultimately playing some small part here in trying to get this thing back on track and uh, doing it as humbly as possible. I hope that we can make a difference. Thank you for having me on. And I know that we'll continue to talk. Absolutely. And thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. And just a quick reminder, if you'd like a copy of Tim Alberta's book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, we'd be happy to send you one for a gift of $50 or more to The Roy's Report this month. Again, we don't have any large donors or advertising. We simply have you, the people who care about exposing evil and restoring the church. So if you'd like to support our work and get Tim's book, just go to julieroys.com slash donate. That's julieroys.com slash donate. 
Also, I wanna let you know that next week, I'll be releasing another talk from the Restore Conference. This one is by veteran church planner, Lance Ford, who gave an amazing talk on the Christian addiction to leadership and why it's so toxic. I love this talk and I think you will too. So be watching for that. We'll release the talk as both an audio podcast and as a video at my YouTube channel. Also, just a quick reminder to subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. That way, you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then please share the podcast on social media so more people can hear about this great content. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. Hope you were blessed and encouraged.